So I want to start off by talking about one of my favorite side gigs at the school I work at, Eastern Christian. Um, and it's actually becoming a triple jump coach. Um, I have never triple jumped in my entire life. And day one, literally day one of working at this school, the track and field coach came to me and looked at me in the eyes, Joel A. Paul, who's one of my dearest friends now, and he goes, hey, I heard you ran cross country, is that true? And I was like, yeah, I ran cross country in college, yeah. He's like, you wanna coach jumps? And I was like, I have never jumped in my life. He's like, you'll be perfect, don't worry about it. And that was the conversation, and suddenly I was a triple jump and long jump coach. Um, and so then it became this realization, I was like, okay, I'm gonna be a jumps coach, I should learn how to do these things. So I went to a conference, I went up through a bunch of YouTube videos, and I learned how to coach people in long and triple jump and a little bit of high jump. And so for those who don't know what um, triple jump is, it's actually one of my favorite events um, in any track and field or Olympic um, like competition. So here are some pictures behind me of like people in their last phase of the jump, the, the most, uh, most unglamorous uh, phase of the jump where you're the most tired, you're most stretched, um, making the funniest faces as you're about to jump into the sand pit. But I have a video for you, it's just 20 seconds of um, the actual world record for triple jump that was established in 95 and has not been broken since. Um, to give you context, it, they use meters, which I know it's not feet, but he got the guy who got this world record got 18.43 meters, which in our units is 60 feet, okay? And that's from the moment he first takes off to the moment he lands in the pit. So what you're gonna see is this man does three jumps. He does one jump on one leg, and then he does another jump that kinda looks like a bound, which looks like he's running in midair, and then the final jump is him jumping into the pit, and that's what triple jump is. So go ahead and watch the clip. Here you go, Jonathan Edwards in 95. So there's a first jump, second jump, third jump, and there he is setting the world record. And then in his second jump right after this, he broke his own world record on top of that, and that record has not been broken at, by any Olympian since uh, 95. So we're getting close to the um, almost, what, 30 year mark at this point, and this record is long standing. So triple jump requires a lot. It requires you building up a lot of speed in the initial part where you sprint down, you have to know the exact amount of uh, steps basically before you hit the first line where you do the first jump. Then you have to be able to jump on one leg and land on that one leg correctly. Because if you land too weird in the front, then you could actually damage your knee. If you land too weird in the back, you could damage your heel. So you have to land perfectly mid-foot. And then you have to go into a bound, which is hard to transition from one hop and then go into another jump where you're basically soaring through the air and it looks like elongated sprint. Um, and that's the hardest phase to get them to do. So usually the kids, when they learn how to do it, they'll do the hop and then just kind of step. And then over time, they learn how to jump it and stretch it out forward. And then the hardest part out of all of it is encouraging um, my students to then jump into the pit afterwards. Because when you jump into the pit, you can't just kind of casually jump or, and cut off all the momentum. You have to carry all the momentum into the pit, into something that looks victorious and wonderful with your legs stretched out, you know, just like these pictures, and you have to land, and we, I tell them, you have to land on your butt. And they're like, why do I have to land on my butt? Sand will get everywhere. It's like, because then you'll go furthest, because believe it or not, the longer you lift up your legs, the longer you stay up in the air, and that the longer you stay up in the air, the higher score you will get, because you'll go a further distance. 
And so triple jump is easily the most, one of the most complicated jumps to actually teach my kids. Um, it is very, very um, bad. It would be very, very wrong of me to say to one of my students on the day of an event, hey, you've never done triple jump before. We need someone to do triple jump. Go ahead and do triple jump. They would look at me and be like, what, Mr. Bailey? I have to do what? Yeah, just watch this guy and watch a senior you know, completely ace the triple jump and then be like, now you go do it. No, you would never do that to any student for any event, especially for triple jump. Maybe long jump because all you got to do is run up to the line and jump into the pit. There's nothing complicated about it. You could just get some quick points doing that. But for triple jump, you need to take the time in practice. You need to have the sand pit. You need to have the environment created so that way they can be formed into becoming the triple jumper that they need to be, that they can be filled with the knowledge of what they need to do in order to get into the pit. And then finally, on the event day, then they could go be a triple jumper. And I've had a great privilege being a triple jump coach um, where I have sent two kids to states, and I've never done triple jump in my whole life. And this one kid that we have right now, he's a senior, and I'm hoping he's going to break 43 this year. He's got a 41 right now in triple jump. And just for context, just remember, that's 20 feet away from the world record, you know, so there's still hope, you know. But, <laughs> but by high school, most of these kids will break, um, like the high varsity will get up to 50 feet. Um, low varsity will get around, like the state winners will get around 45 feet. So that's how far these kids jump and how much they end up loving the sport. But it only comes through the forming and the practicing um, outside of the event day. You can never just expect a kid to just go up to the line and do a triple jump. It would be too, too mean, and they would not succeed at all. What's funny, though, is that sometimes as Christians, we do a very similar thing. We like to do the competition part, but we don't really see the value of the practicing portion in our private life, you know. We like to pour out you know, good service. We might like to pour out what it looks like to appear like a Christian, but sometimes we don't do the forming and filling part um, on the inside first. Or we get so lo lost in pouring out work for God you know, because we have good intentions. We're like, we gotta do this for God, gotta do this for God, that we forget the most important principles of stopping to be formed and filled by him first and foremost. Sometimes we operate as if God built us you know, as slaves, that, that we need to do uh, work, God's work for his affection, when the reality is, is that God built us to be partners in creation and to go bring um, his peace and his justice into the world after we experience his forming and his filling. We are meant to pour out God's spirit, but first we have to understand the importance of being formed and film, filled by him as um, initially. So let us pray before I read aloud the scripture. Lord Jesus, I ask again that you would just open our hearts to your word, that you would remind us um, of the beauty of your good news through Jesus Christ, and you'd give us permission, um, and that we would give ourselves permission to take down the walls of our hearts so we would, let, we would let your spirit convict us and change us so we could look more like the image of your son. We love you and we praise you in your holy and precious name. Amen. So here, um, here's the passage we're going to read from for today. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord, man, Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. 
the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. So this is a pretty common story in you know, our lives as Christians. Um, if you have not read the Bible before and you start reading the Bible, you will usually find this passage almost immediately. It's very easy. You just read for about less than 10 minutes and you're at this point in the Bible. Um, and it's an easy part that we kind of gloss over. We just say like, oh yeah, cool. This is how we were created and that's kind of it. Um, so one of the things I want to draw us into today is that it is definitely how God created us, you know, historically, but it's also a teaching about who God is and why he creates us and what he was intending while he created us. Because we see, end up seeing this pattern of what God does to create us in how he recreates us and reshapes us and transforms us even in Jesus throughout the entire Bible. And I want to take some time to look at some specific words in this passage to help illustrate how God's creative intentions um, are long-lasting and how he desires these things in us throughout the rest of our lives. And the first thing I want to bring up is this word um, dust um, right here where it says, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground. So this is typically what you find in your NIV translation or your ESV translation of the Bible is this word that this word is translated as dust. Um, a better word to translate this for is actually the word clay. The word behind it in Hebrew is this word adama. And the word adama refers to the stuff on the ground that you walk on and the stuff that could be used to make pottery, which is also, you know, clay that you find in the ground. Pottery is everywhere in the ancient world. If you go to Israel today, um, pottery is almost like, you know, just on the side of the road. You could be walking and be like, oh, here is an, oh, this looks like a Roman piece of pottery. Cool. That's fun. I'll take that home, I guess, you know. And it's just like little chips. Pottery is equivalent to plastic, basically, in how you understand how frequent plastic is everywhere. That's the same with ancient clay pottery in, the, um, in Israel. And so with ancient people, they were very familiar with this idea that, you know, from the ground, God went down picked up the clay, and then formed man out of it. And if you can even imagine that, you know, like it makes a little bit more sense. Like how does God pick up dust and then like, you know, form a human out of that? Well, if you imagine it just as a clay, as God picking up clay and then God forming the clay to be a human, oh, that makes a lot more sense, you know? And that's how we were imagined and that's how historically God decided to create us is that it's not just I'm grabbing dust, I'm grabbing the clay of the earth to create um, humanity. And then take a moment to note that Adama and Adam rhyme. It's not like Adam's, it's a, like Adam's name is named to remind him where God made him in the first place. It's like Adam's supposed to remind himself, remind himself, hey, remember, you were made from the clay of the earth in God's hands specifically. And all of this reflects a concept called the Imago Dei, which is this Latin phrase to refer to the image of God. You see, in this moment, God is creating Adam in his own image, out of clay, so that way Adam can go represent God on the earth. You know, in, in the ancient Near East, this idea was kind of an idea that humans were like these tiny versions of, mini versions of the gods, you know, in their ancient mythologies, you know. Um, the Babylonians even have this story of how they made, the Babylonians gods made humans out of blood just to be slaves to please the gods. But then the Jews look at how God created the earth and say, no, 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 that's not correct. God created us because he loves us, and God created us to be partners with him to go make the earth beautiful. And so everything about this story in Genesis 2 is going against the culture of the time, which said that humanity was meant for, to be slaves and servants of God, and instead, the Bible is saying, no, humanity was made for relationship and intimacy 
with God. Other parts of the Bible, including Jeremiah, will also describe humanity as clay pots and God as this master potter. So this language isn't unfamiliar to the Bible. We just have to take a moment to take those ideas that we find in like Jeremiah and just kind of read the, the metaphor, the image right here, that God is this master potter. He's looking at the clay of the earth and saying something beautiful can come out of this. And then he creates all of mankind from that position. Reading it like this helps us realize that in our historical creativeness, we are created by careful hands with love and in purpose. However, sometimes we don't feel like this is true. You know, we don't feel like we're people who are created with love and purpose. Our culture is filled with ways of telling us how much we need to form ourselves in our own image, you know, or form ourselves to make ourselves better. And, you know, there's always like a little bit that's true. Like, yes, I should go on a run three times a week or should, I should work out or I should eat healthy, you know. But sometimes and often in American culture, we make it a place of obsession, you know, where I need to do this. I need to look this way. I need to have these accolades. I need to have this appearance so that way everyone can see me a certain way so I can shape my image the way that I want to be presented, you know, and this can end up being in places like comparison, looking at how we view our career, what university we go to, believing that if we don't do these certain things, we'll be complete failures. And then when we compare each other, compare ourselves with each other, we look at each other as if we're supposed to be that person and we get envious at how God created them and despise how we're made instead. You know, places like social media, our jobs, and even sometimes our extended family are great ways where we try to form our own identity to make ourselves look like our image and how we want to be presented instead of looking like God's image and looking at the beauty that God created with his masterful hands when he first took us from the ground, shaped us before we were even thought of in our mother's womb and said, this is my child who I love and they're going to go do such wonderful things. This passage brings us back to the truth that we are formed by God and our identity is set in him. And we're invited to rest in that truth. That when we ask the question, who are we? That we are God's child. We are formed by God very, very specifically and with such intention. And there's not a mistake that he made. Yeah, granted, we sinned and we abused how we were made. But when God created us, before everything was set, he said, I love this creation. And that was enough for him. Some of us might be bowls, you know, in a sense. You know, if we're going with the pottery metaphor, some people might be coffee mugs. Some people might be a teacup. But it's important to know that humanity is formed as clay in his hands. We're designed specifically by God, the master potter. The second point I want to bring up is this word in this phrase. And, and God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And so this phrase, breath of life, in Hebrew it's this phrase, ruach hayim, which is just breath of life. But it's a phrase that you actually see that has importance. See, ruach is actually the concept that goes behind God's spirit. And so when we go into the New Testament and we talk about the Holy Spirit, that is God's ruach, God's spirit, God's breath, God's living force that he comes and he breathes onto humanity and all creation. God's spirit fills humanity and often in the Bible is described as the source of life. Sometimes the Old Testament will describe death as God's spirit leaving someone because the air we breathe is from God. 
But when God's spirit fills someone, wonderful things end up happening in the Bible too. You know, two artists are filled with God's spirit and they draw on the walls of the tabernacle in Exodus. People worship from God's spirit. Prophets are filled with God's spirit and they declare God's message and write God's word. The apostles are filled with God's spirit and they heal, they cast out demons and they raise the dead. When we are filled with God's spirit, we are restored. We're made whole. We're healed, we're purified, and containing the only thing our clay vessel was meant to contain, the breath and the spirit of the living God. And we see this happen in Acts 2, that when the day of Pentecost comes, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came down from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting, and came to rest on, and uh, what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated came to rest on each of them, and all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So you see the continuity in the Old Testament and the New Testament. That God breathes his Spirit into us as created beings. And in the New Testament, he empowers us with that Holy Spirit. So that way, the apostles can go do the work of Jesus on the earth. And that's really the whole point. The filling of God's Spirit is a healing presence. So that way, we can go and pour it out to the entire world. That we are filled with God so that way we could be remade, we could be made whole, we could come alive in Jesus. God's spirit is meant to bring us to fullness into his life. The filling of God's spirit is a healing presence. In every example of scripture, when God fills his people, the person in creation is given a glimpse of eternity and the kingdom of heaven is further established on earth. However, we're tempted to believe that God doesn't fill us, you know, and so some, in turn, that ends up becoming a theology of believing that God actually abandons us. Whether that it's this healing love was only for the apostles or we believe that for some reason we are unlovable, there's temptation to believe that God has turned his eyes away from us. And, you know, this is not just a lie that we believe as adults, but even kids believe. You know, last week when we had a week called Spiritual Emphasis Week at um, the school I work at, which is basically we have chapel every day. We open up space for the Holy Spirit to speak into um, teenagers' lives. And I was praying over kids and just this image of Jesus. There's kept on coming up with these kids where Jesus was looking at them. And spiritually, I felt like the kids were looking down and not looking into the eyes of Jesus. And so the prayer I was praying over them and I was like, hey guys, you need to look into the eyes of Jesus and you need to tell me what color his eyes are, you know, because like you need to see that his eyes are filled with love. And this was just happening over and over again and it was just beautiful because every single time they could see what Jesus' loving eyes looked like, they broke, they were filled, they saw, they had breakthrough, they saw this moment of transformation in them and they had transformation in them because they saw and believed that Jesus' eyes towards them were not filled with scorn and hatred, but were filled with love and utter affection for them. And I realized in my own like, uh, reflection, that I was like, man, I, I don't look at the eyes of Jesus enough even in my own life. I need to take the time to realize that his eyes are filled with love for me and he is good to me. And from that place, that's the place of our filling. It's easy to not look into the eyes of Jesus and believe that his love has left us but we're invited to gaze into his eyes. We're invited to go approach the throne of grace. It's from God's affection for us that we're filled, not from our ability to look like a Christian. We have to remember that if God breathed into us, that means he had to get close to us. So he takes his clay creation, you know, and he has to go, so it may have even looked like a kiss. He fills us from his love for us, not because we have earned his favor. The pain of not believing in God is also that our body is not filled with the beautiful presence of God on this side of heaven. 
Humanity is meant to be filled with God's spirit. God breathes into us his ruach so we can experience life. We are formed by God intentionally because he has, he's a master potter. He fills us because he deeply, deeply loves us. And then he invites us to pour ourselves out, to work and tend the fields that he's created. And so I want to show you this last verse. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. Right here we see, like if I were an ancient Jewish person and I was reading this passage and I had to wonder, why am I here on this earth? This is the reason why. God created me intentionally. Um, God fills me with his love. And now what am I to do to go take care of the earth just like Adam did before he fell? That's the goal. When we work and take care of the creation that we're given, where the image is that we tend a garden. In the ancient Jewish mind, this would also have been seen as similar to taking care of the temple of God. And in fact, the biblical priests are to work to, and take care of the temple as well. You know, the same um, vocabulary is used when the tabernacle is set up and the temple is set up on purpose because they wanted the priests to think, hey, when you're taking care of God's temple, you're taking care of his creation, just like Adam had to, just like what Adam did. And it's all intentional. And then in the New Testament and moving on, we're invited into a similar pursuit because who becomes God's temple is people. And so we are invited into a similar pursuit that when we pour out the work that God has done in us, when we pour out his spirit after we've been formed and filled, we take care of the temple of God around us. And then every individual who could be part of the temple of God. Because if you imagine every single person is a potential Christian who is not a Christian, you realize that every single person is a potential part, a potential stone in the temple of God. And we're invited to go and take care of every aspect of them. This would mean that we make sure that what is in our domain is taken care of for God. In this garden, you know, that Adam has, there are trees that he has to take care of. And in the Bible, there are instances where humans are compared to trees, like in Psalm 1, like, blessed is he who sits, um, uh, who reads the Torah, because he is like a tree of life. So in a sense, the Bible is saying to take care of humanity as if we are taking care of the Garden of Eden. There is a temptation to believe that we do not have this type of purpose or that we have no purpose or that everything we have done has been without purpose from the get-go, that we are vessels, we are creations that kind of aimlessly wander in the earth and have nothing really to do except make money and just get to the next day, um, when the reality is furthest from the truth. God does not create junk, and he's never created junk. Sure, we can try to corrupt what God has intended and live in evil, but it's never unredeemable. God has masterfully created everything and everyone with purpose to go and do something beautiful within the entire earth. And for humanity, for all of us, it was to pour out his spirit on all creation. We are formed and filled to help pour his love everywhere we go. We might be called to live, gener gener live in generosity for someone. You know, that's pouring out God's spirit. We might be called to proclaim healing in our workplace and watch revival happen before our eyes. That's pouring out God's spirit. We might be called to take care of one person for the rest of our lives very intentionally so that way they can have a way to freedom in Jesus. That's pouring out God's spirit. The work of tending a garden is always hard, but it's always to the pleasure of God and his kingdom to be built. We can't live wishing for assignments that aren't ours. 
We have to ask God's spirit for who he has trusted us with and be faithful to that task um, for the kingdom. God is not an MLM or a multi-level marketing scheme either. He's not a God who says, oh, just work on this tier for a while. Maybe one day you can get to the tier with a Lamborghini and be rich, famous, and powerful. He's not that type of God. It's also easy to just try the pouring out end of following Christ. And you can, you know, God will use that. But there's blessing in letting him form you and fill you with his love. So that way when you tend the garden, it's filled with love rather than frustration and scorn. Once we are formed by God's hands and filled with his spirit, we are to pour out his love into the world. Humanity is meant to do the work of God in the world, which means that we also have to try to form those who we love, fill them with the love of Jesus so that they too will pour out the glory of God with us. See, God created an intentional, commun- created an intentional creation so that way we could be an intentional community of people who are constantly pursuing God's spirit to be formed and filled so that way we could pour out to each other to encourage each other to be formed and filled in Jesus as well. And it becomes a beautiful cycle of showing love to our neighbor as God has loved us. The beauty of the gospel is this, and I want to show you Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This word for handiwork right here is this beautiful word, poema, in Greek, which is where we get the English word poem eventually in history. Even in the New Testament, God considers us his poetry, his artwork, or even as the message writes it, his masterpiece. Paul picks up on what God is saying through Genesis 2 and says, yeah, we're created intentionally in God's hands and not just randomly, but for good works in Jesus Christ. The gift of God for you is that God created you and filled you with Jesus to go and do the good works of Jesus. Even right now, if you don't find yourself pouring out to anyone, know that God wants to form you and fill you and might even right now be forming you and filling, trying to fill you even if you don't know it. He's preparing you to do good works in Christ Jesus. Some of the best news we can receive is knowing that we belong to a master artist who knows who we are and how to use us best in his kingdom. But we have three tempting lies to overcome in this journey because these lies can keep us actually from pursuing God with all that we are. And not for any other reason, not that God is making us believe these lies. That is not the truth. But the enemy throws these lies at us, and they can sometimes inhibit us from realizing that we're as deeply loved as we are. We're tempted to believe that we're not formed correctly by God. You know, if we live in comparison, we end up looking at each other and saying, like, oh, God made me damaged, or God made me not enough, or my past is too much, and I am unfixable, I'm unredeemable. When the reality is, is we have to remember God is a master artist and he knows how to fix and redeem and build all the pottery to make it beautiful for his good. We're tempted to believe that we are not filled by God because we believe this lie that God has abandoned us and that God does not love us as deeply as he does and his eyes have turned his gaze away from us. The reality is that God has his eyes fixed on you and he has not turned them away and he's never going to turn them away. We're also tempted to believe that we are not purposed by God. And we believe that we end up being a useless tool in a garden. 
And the reality is, is that God does not make junk. God makes every one of us with intention and purpose. That way we can pour out his love as we're being transformed in Christ Jesus. These lies can remove the authority from the voices that speak against hell better than anyone else. Not for any other reason that we don't believe and we don't see that God has a beautiful intention in store for us and has loved us since the dawn of creation. There's a danger in not pursuing his filling or letting him form you when he desires to form you. The danger is that we live even a fraction of our lives believing that God does not love us as deeply as he does. So, does this go? Oh, did it go? No, it didn't go. Okay, one second. So there um, is this phrase that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said in one of his sermons. He says, the most dangerous type of atheism is not a theoretical atheism, but practical atheism. And the most practical atheism is believing that God doesn't love you or your neighbor as much as he does. But we, this can be overcome by pursuing the beauty of Jesus. We are meant to pour out God's spirit, but first we must be fil formed and filled by him first. So in all of this, my invitation for you today is to remember to pursue the heart of Jesus and let that pursuit shape how you pour out his love as you serve him. Pursue the heart of Jesus. Let him shape you. Let him fill you so that way you can go do good works for Jesus. Don't flip-flop it. Don't try to work your way into the kingdom. Let the kingdom love you and build you and then go serve accordingly. God is eager to pour you, but what will it take for you to let him form you and fill you? It's very easy to do things for Jesus he doesn't ask us to do. Jesus can use what we give him. You know, the story of Joseph shows how God takes all these bad things that happened to Joseph and turns them for his good. But the motivation why we do these things can be for our self-image rather than for God's image. We can do them because we want to be an influential person. We don't want to be alone or we don't want to be useless. But when we let, when we let God form and fill us, our motivation to pour out the gospel becomes one and united with God's motivation. So in this, I want to bless you to rest. Be blessed to rest and rest in his presence and let him form you first. The Bible calls this restoration, and in it we become new creations in Christ. I'm not saying that all of us in here need to stop everything that they're doing and not serve in any capacity until perfect, you're perfected. You're not getting perfected until you go, see he go to heaven and see Jesus face to face, you know. But I'm saying that there's a blessing in God's presence when we stop to be formed and filled first and let the Spirit of God commission our work. To do this practically, you know, all you have to do is I, or you could start with taking 10 minutes a day, you know. Um, there's an app called Lectio 365 you can use. It's really great at just a 10-minute devotional where it reads you through scripture, gives you a guided prayer practice, um, and there are many like it in similar ways on the internet that you could use or on your own time, or you could just use your Bible and just pause and be before Jesus for 10 minutes. What's important is that you pause we can't be formed and filled unless we know what he is speaking and saying over us that day. We have to stop and listen to the voice of the Father who loves to speak and whispers in the quiet to us because the world is filled with noise and it's very easy to get distracted to go on to the next thing. But he invites us to stay still and say, hey, do you remember that I love you today and yesterday and tomorrow? You could use a passage of scripture and just say, Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. And focus on his love, the name of Jesus and his goodness. 
I also encourage you to write down what you feel or think Jesus is saying. Then see it transform your life over time. You can watch God form you into the person he desires you to be or the person he's always imagined you are. Jesus is always with us. And when we say that you're, when we say Holy Spirit, you're welcome here, it's to acknowledge the Spirit's authority over you and give him permission to work over you. So if you've never prayed like that before, I want to invite you to pray like that, to give him permission to do the work that he wants to do. He is the master potter, and he knows how he's made you and how he wants to form you. Your friend might be a teacup for the rich and you might be a clay cup for the poor, but if you're both pouring out the spirit of Jesus as you take care of his creation, what you're doing is filled with life. It's only exposure to God's presence that can form us and fill us. We can't work heaven into existence. We can only rest in heaven because Jesus is heaven and he's given his spirit and put it inside each of you. So let's take a moment and pray together and listen to the Holy Spirit. Surrendering to, God's hand over, surrendering to God's hand over us can be hard. Being formed in his presence might mean we have to let go of old habits or patterns of thought. Um, he, if he highlights anything in you, I want to invite you to give it to God and invite a friend to confess it to um, or a partner to pray with you. If you need a fresh filling, I want you to imagine, I want you to invite you to imagine Jesus' eyes and fight to look up into his gaze as well. If you believe God wants to commission you to pour out his spirit, ask the Holy Spirit who he wants you to love. We want to do it in his timing, in his way, and in his beauty. We don't want to force things with our hands because his hands are gentle and good. So bow your heads with me and let's invite the Holy Spirit into just forming and filling us. Holy Spirit, you are welcome. And just right now, um, Jesus, would you settle our hearts and our minds to be one with your kingdom and one with your presence? Jesus, would you cast aside every anxious thought and help us focus on your cross only and how beautiful it is. Jesus, where we are broken, would you bring renewal? Where we view that there's a chip in the pottery, would you fill it in with beautiful gold and remind us that Jesus is here as the healer and that you are here to fix and restore all things. Would you highlight in us what you desire to shape and remove and change for your glory? And would you give us courage to bring it to your cross and to bring it to um, someone we trust to pray over us? Jesus, highlight them in our minds so that way we can surrender them to you and make them clear that you want to remove them so that way your kingdom can advance inside of us as you form us. And Jesus, if we have believed that you have abandoned us, would you just show us your eyes and your face? And everyone, would you look into the eyes of Jesus and see that his eyes are filled with love for you?
He's not turned his gaze away. Jesus, show us who we are commissioned to love. Show us the people that are in our lives or maybe that we interact with that you want for your kingdom and that you desire us to go reach out to, to go bring in. Show us the people we are commissioned to tend and take care of in this earth. Show us the garden, the patch of land we are to work in. So that way we can work in it for your kingdom and your power and your glory forever and ever. Jesus, we love you and we thank you for everything that you've done, everything that you're doing, that you have created us with such intention and purpose and you desire us to partner with you in fixing and restoring the earth for your name, Jesus. Forgive us when we've forgotten that you love us and help us to remember more how deeply you are in love with us and help us to move in that so that way we can go represent your name. So Jesus, I bless these guys in, the, in your name that they would know the height and the depth and the width and the breadth of your love and that it goes with you wherever they go. And I bless them to pause. If it's 10 minutes, if it's an hour a day, however long they have, Lord Jesus, I bless them to pause and be before your presence and to recognize the voice of their Savior. And Jesus, we invite you into our week, into our month, and into our year. And frankly, just into our lives. We invite you to change us so that we can look more like the image of your son, Jesus. We love you, we praise you, and we give our whole selves to you. In your holy and precious name, amen.